David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin Ant, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Good morning. It's 9.31 a.m. Central Standard Time, February 22nd, 2019. This is episode 66 of Bitcoin And, and we're going to have to jump right into it because I got a lot of stuff. Uh, today is going to be a permaculture day. I've uh, been reading Bill Mollison's Permaculture Designer's Manual for some time, and I'm only on... Uh, midway through chapter four of a 12 chapter textbook. This thing is thick, real thick. Um, so what is it that I want to talk about today? Well, I want to talk about what Bill's talking about in permaculture design known as edge effect. And we're not going to get, you know, I'm not going to do all of it because that's not, you know, what this, this whole thing is about. I'm going to, not all of it in one shot anyway, I'll, I'll bring you more stuff later, but I've got enough that I feel comfortable uh, talking about the concept of a boundary or edge or, and or edge. And um, what I want to start with here is um, a definition of like sort of a definition of edges and surfaces. Um, there is a figure in this textbook uh, called edges and surfaces, and what it does in the na- in, it's describing edges and surfaces uh, where two things meet in the natural world. Okay, is we're not you know you can extrapolate this to anything, uh, but these are what we normally see. So these edges would be like the edge between air and water on the surface of a lake, uh, fresh water versus uh, edging up against salt water. Uh, warm against cool, flowing against still water, grass on land right against the water, marsh right against water, anaerobic uh, conditions versus subsoil conditions, soil versus subsoil conditions, stream versus its bank, uh, brackish versus versus really salty, uh, stream order versus the suborder, as in like where streams start running into each other as they coalesce and, and become larger and larger and eventually become rivers. Um, one rainfall catchment site versus a uh, edging against the, uh, the catchment edge of another catchment site. And the catchment is basically like where if you were to think of catchment as like uh, you're a raindrop and you fall you're going to land on some catchment. And that catchment basically means that you flow to the left because you ended up in the left side of the or the the left hand catchment versus the one just over the hill that goes into the right hand catchment. So, you know, if you're looking at like two valleys uh, against each other and and like you're, uh, you're looking straight on at both of them and you see a ridgeline coming down that separates the two 
that's the edge. That ridge line right there is the edge. Uh, so we got like, you know, a forest coming right up to a lake or, or water. Uh, and then, you know, water versus mud. All right, these are pretty much literally describe almost every natural edge that there is. Of course, you know, there's, there would be another one like, you know, the uh, wind moving and finding the edge of where the, that wind stops moving. But, you know, turbulence is, is you know, what happened, you know, what happened at that kind of edge. So uh, what about these things? Well, the neat thing about edges are that naturally particles will naturally accumulate at that edge particle. I don't know. Could be anything. Leaves flying in the air, snow, uh, like a sandstorm. If you run up, like if you're, if you've ever been in West Texas or any place where you get a good dust storm, look at the fence line of any fence and you will see that it is higher than the surrounding, the surrounding level of the dirt. Why? Because as the sand blows through that fence, that fence, even though it may be like a barbed wire fence, there's going to be enough mass that intersects the wind blowing that it's going to slow down the wind just enough to cease it or to reduce its velocity to where the particle of sand that it's carrying is now too heavy for that velocity to carry. It drops right there. Okay. Uh, let's see. The, uh, Edges re also reflect where special or unique niches are available in space and or time within that boundary area itself. Um, and then the last, uh, last point that I want to make here is that the resources of two or more media systems are available at that boundary. So the, the, like where grass and where grass and water meet all the resources that come along with the grass and it's not just the grass itself. It's everything that the grass produces. It's everything that, uh, the little critters that depend on that grass. Uh, it's the cooling effect of that grass. It's everything that goes along with that system at that intersection between where the grass and the water meet. It had that intersection right there has both the resources of all that the grass brings with it and all that the water brings with it. So it's the richest, it is that line in between where grass meets water has the richest amount of resources because it draws from the resource pool of both of the media, the grass being one media, the water being, you know, part of another media. <clears throat> so, uh, so, what, so, since we've got these boundaries and they're collect, not only are they collecting particles, let's not say that the particles were sand. Let's say the particles were blowing leaves and it runs through a fence. Uh, same thing happens. It's going to slow the velocity of the wind down just enough. That leaf no longer is able to be supported by the wind. So it drops right by the fence over the time that those leaves will build up left to their own devices. Okay. This is like, nobody's like running a leaf blower or, or something like that left to their own devices. Those leaves in the presence of moisture are going to collect critters. And those critters are going to break down those leaves. And over time, you're going to get really, really, really rich soil right there at the fence line. Okay. So 
and, and again, this goes with all particles. Like for instance, let's say it was snow. And the same thing with dust that happens with dirt and dust in a dust storm, it happens in a snowstorm. Blows through a fence. That fence represents a boundary line. It slows the velocity of the wind just enough that all of a sudden the snowflake that's being carried in the wind doesn't have enough wind support to support its weight, falls to the ground, which means that there's going to be more snow compacted next to a fence than anywhere else out in the plains. Okay, we're like let's let's say you're out in what like West Texas and it's just wide open country and there's a single fence there. In a snowstorm, as that snow collects and then melts, there's gonna be more water available at the boundary. <laughs> if there were leaves there to begin with, then those leaves will get the benefit of all that water. And then the critters that are there are going to get the benefit of all that water being soaked into those leaves and growing fungus and bacteria so those critters can just chow down because insects don't really ever eat cellulose. They, in fact, feed on the bacteria and or fungi that is feeding on the leaves. So now we've got this boundary line where we've got a whole buttload of leaves And then all of a sudden we get winter and then all of a sudden a whole bunch of stored water is packed up next to the fence. Spring comes around and then you get all these leaves that become completely saturated and within a season they turn into dirt. Over the years next to the fence, you end up with really high fertility systems because it's drawing on all it's able to capture the particle, the, the particles that are coming through. Leaves, organic material, you, you, birds are going to like land on the fence. They're going to poop right there. So there's uh, uh, more added fertility in the form of phosphorus and nitrogen from the bird poop. You know, every time you see a boundary, what I'm getting at is that every time, if you can identify where boundaries are, that's where you should dig for gold. That's probably where you should be digging for gold because the chances of you being able to find something worthwhile in the middle of a plain is minuscule. Whereas at an edge, oh, all of a sudden things become very, very different because it's getting all the resources from the prairie and all the resources from whatever other media is rubbing up against it. So let's go, let me uh, go on here for a second. I need to make sure that my notes Yeah, I want to read this one paragraph here. Special physical, social, or chemical conditions exist on the boundary because of the reaction between adjacent media. As all boundary conditions have some fuzzy depth, they constitute a third media, the media of the boundary zone itself. And what Bill's talking about there is sort of just what I was was just saying is that because of the boundary line, there's something special about that boundary line that traps particles. It allows for, it allows niches in time and space. It does all kinds of things. So even though it's the, like the, like a fence, let's say somebody just put a fence right at the boundary line between water and grass, all kinds of stuff are going to move in. All right. So it, it, it allows by itself, the fence line itself is its own region. It's just tiny, 
but it reflects the resources of one media added to the resources of another media. So even in that tiny strip, the amount of productivity is through the roof. Okay. So let's go on. Um, if, if it is the case that edge, uh, edge effect and edge edges and boundaries are so vitally important and they're important because they're rich in resources and really for no other reason, they, they just end up being very much more rich in resources than either one of the media that caused this boundary. So if that's the case, then wouldn't it be in our best interest to figure out ways to increase the linear distance of said boundary to catch even more of the synergy between the two media systems that are rubbing up against each other, right? All right, so uh, turns out you can do that. <laughs> Crenellation. Uh, the word is crenulate. Uh, how do you see uh, C-R-E-N-E-L-L-A-T-E-D for those who want to actually Google that and get and, and get deeper into it. But basically, it means ta- like um, if you were to uh, crumble up a piece of paper, essentially you're kind of crenulating it. Uh, the same thing can happen with a with an edge, right? So let's say I got a pond in the middle of the field that is a perfect circle. Okay, so. As we said, the boundaries around that pond where it meets the grass is the edge. And we know by what we were just talking about that at that edge, there's more resources than in the center of the pond on the surface or in the center of the field away that the the pond exists in. It's right at the edge where the grass meets the pond that we are the most interested in. And we know we're interested in it because we know it has more resources. So if it has more resources, is there a way to increase the perimeter of that pond and still not make it any bigger and yet not make it any smaller? And turns out there is. If we make the line, the cir- instead of a circle around the uh, edge, make it a sine wave that goes around in a circle what you end up with is the exact same area of a pond and you have twice the amount of boundary. That's right. You can get 2x x perimeter on a pond if you just make it undulate, like think of a sine wave that goes out and into the pond, out and into the pond, out and into the pond. And if you do it correctly, you still end up with the exact same area of the pond and twice the edge effect. Well, not twice the edge effect, but twice the edge, twice the actual perimeter. So instead of planting, like let's say that I want to, oh, I don't know. Let's make let's make it easy and not worry about food. Let's just say pretty flowers, you know, it's like water lilies or, you know, some, some kind of thing that needs both soil and a shit ton of water and all the the uh, nutrients that are coming from the grass and and all the nutrients that are coming from the little critters in the water are all going to be right there at that edge, right? Not all, but it's really going to locate there. So if I can plant 10 uh, plants around the edge, now I can plant 20. I have I have not lost a single centimeter or or uh, let's see. I haven't lost a single square centimeter of surface area of the pond and 
because the way that math works, I ha- I also have not let, lost a single square centimeter of area of the grassland. And yet I'm able to plant twice as many plants. I mean, find the edge. And if you find the edge and it's a rich edge, the next question, you the, the first question you ask after that is, how can I increase the edge? How can I increase the perimeter? How can I make this edge longer? Because the more edge you got, the more resources you're going to be able to draw draw from. And um, there is, in fact, um, a figure in this book. And it actually, it's, it's really neat because it shows a f- like a cyclone fence. And for those of you who don't know, that's like a, your regular kind of chain link fence that you see everywhere. And it's like strung in between, you know, tw- between poles. And, the fi- you know, the figure kind of shows what we were talking about. There's leaves and accumulated accumulated organic detritus because once the wind blows through that fence, it loses its velocity and loses its carrying capacity of mass, so the mass falls right at the fence line. Those poles end up being a, play, a, a great place for birds to perch because they don't like being on the ground. That makes them, you know, pr- uh, they, they end up being prey instead of predators. So they perch up on the pole and they poop. So they not only do they poop out phosphorus and nitrogen, they also poop out seeds and they're pooping out seeds right at these poles and then right at the in in a linear fashion between the poles is a whole bunch of detritus that is breaking down and all of a sudden the soil is becoming nutritious this is a so a fence left to its own devices is going to turn into a tree line and a vine line and a hedgerow and all manner of critters are going to move in like you know, after it's all said and done, especially if the birds are pooping out berry bush seeds like blackberry, raspberry, that kind of thing. So you got this long line of fertility and all of a sudden stuff just starts growing. And all you had was a fence and a couple of posts. And next thing you know, 20, 25 years later, like like I said, left to its own devices, it becomes a coral reef except just above, you know, above the water instead of below the water. And for those of you who don't know, a coral reef is probably one of the most richest biodiverse environments on the face of this planet. And the last thing that I want to say is intermediation between, uh, between at intermediation of the boundary between the two media. And I don't want anybody to freak out, okay? Uh, Bill Mall, I don't know what Bill Mollison, you know, he he was writing this in 1988, so you could actually write freely and speak freely without pissing so many people off and, you know, whatever. But what I'm about to read may very well piss some of you off, and I'm sorry, but I'm not going to not read it just because. <clears throat> so here's the, here's the thing. Let's just read the statement. <clears throat> Select and place components so that incompatibility is nullified. Interdependence is maximized. After all, in the absence of tigers, Hindus need Muslims to eat cows. They may also need a Christian business person between them to affect the transaction. The interdependence of, our, of mosaics of belief are called for as much as mosaics of plants. So what he's talking about here is the fact that this kind of scales up. Uh, it's not just about plants. We can get into a situation where we start talking about the sacred cow of the Hindus. 
you know, if you're a good Hindu, you're, you're not going to slaughter a cow and eat the meat. However, cows have this pesky, they have a pesky nature of reproducing themselves. And as, and the more they reproduce, you think that may be a good thing until you figure out well, what are they going to eat? And then they start starving themselves off. That's, that's not good. Bill's right. In the absence of a natural predator that predates and keeps your, uh, your stock culled down to a manageable level, you're going to need something else to take down those cows. So he's right. In the absence of tigers, Hindus need Muslims to eat the cows because Muslims will, they don't have a problem with this. Okay. And the thing about Muslims and Hindus, if you think about the interaction between India and Pakistan, right, they don't get along. Not, they really don't get along. There are cases where they do, but in general, it is not the case where Hindus and Muslims really get along all that well. The intermediate, the intermediary, intermediate, uh, intermediary here is a Christian guy. Some dude is like, I don't give a shit. I just want, I, I, I'm going to take 10% of this transaction. And I will intermediate between group A and group B who don't seem to get along so that they are able to affect trade. And this happens a lot. That boundary layer is not just where birds poop and create forests. That boundary layer is where we do business. Okay, so again, if you find a place that you can do business, the first question you can ask after that is, how do I extend that line? How do I make more edge? I've, I've identified an edge. How do I crenulate the living shit out of that edge so that I get 2x, 3x, 4x, 5x of the same thing without losing the either part of the media that make uh, the boundary what the boundary is? All right, so that's going to do it for uh, permaculture <laughs> Permaculture for the day. Let's get into uh, the morning roundup. And the first thing on the list is, let me say what you got to Where was I? I got it. I think I just lost my place. It's around here somewhere. Yep, here we go. Okay. Uh, bonfire just got lit, I think. Uh, this is not anything. This is not Bitcoin related. It just popped up this morning. Uh, just so you guys know, one dead and 12 injured as Venezuelan troops open fire on civilians trying to keep Brazilian border open for aid. A day after Guaido's trucks rammed through roadblocks. This is from DailyMail.com. Um, I have not been able uh, able to vet this at all, but this looks like it happened at about uh, 5 o'clock. This, the, it was first published 5 o'clock this morning. Eastern Standard Time. Um, and so this is pretty new. So let's get, I'll just take you through the bullet points and we'll leave it where it is. Venezuelan troops opened fire <clears throat> after arriving at a village where civilians were trying to keep border open. Woman named as Zoyrada Rodriguez, 42, was killed and 12 injured. Four seriously, it has been reported. Dramatic video shows a clash between President Maduro's troops and backers of his rival, Juan Guaido. Security forces shown standing in path of trucks, which are believed to have been on their way to the border. Maduro is trying to block U.S. aid from entering Venezuela, but Guaido is planning to bring it in on Saturday. Rival pop concert set to take place at either end of the blockade border bridge today as tensions mount. That's probably not going to help, y'all. That is probably not going to help. Um, 
anyway, so it looks like, I mean, it this could die down. Now, a lot of stuff has happened in Venezuela uh, over the past couple of years where it looks like shit's going to set on fire, and then all of a sudden it just kind of dies away. This one doesn't, I don't know, I was about to say this one doesn't feel any different, but it somehow it kind of does because you now there's live fire. You got people ramming trucks. You've got all kind. I don't know, man. Looks bad. Uh, we we will we'll just have to see how it shakes out. Um, you know, prayers go out to all the people in Venezuela. This is a crappy, crappy situation to be in, and it's been a crappy, crappy situation to be in ever since Venezuela turned into the third world socialist hellhole that it is. God, God Almighty. All right, uh, let's see here. <laughs> Udi Wertheimer has uh, taken a look at the Binance uh, decentralized exchange and has uh, a few choice words to say on the matter. He says, wanted to take a look into the new Binance Dex, uh, Binance Dex, so I started with the documentation, binancechain.github.io. There's almost nothing there. So I looked for the source code. Guess what? There's no source code. They only have binaries and only for a light client. No full node at all. Um, yeah, binaries. Okay, so I don't want to get off into the weeds on this stuff, but open source software um, projects should have binaries for those people who don't want to compile the code on their own. But when you only offer the binaries, the people that there, there are two people that are left out of this for, if you have a binary only, the two people that are left out are one, the person that actually want, doesn't trust the binary and wants to compile the code on their own. And two, the person who doesn't, maybe they don't even give a shit about running a node, but they want to look at the code. You know, somebody who's like eyes on, is there something here that's nefarious? Could this be bad? With binaries, you can't do that. You can't do either. You're doing two things. One, you're giving up your chances of ever looking at the code for yourself. If that's your, if that's your thing, if you can, if you're a coder, you know how to read code, find bugs, find malicious crap, and that's what you do, you're not going to be able to do that with a binary. And if you are somebody who, who really does want to run the full node, then you're automatically trusting what's in that binary because you weren't able to compile it yourself. Um, so this is, I, I don't have that many, much of a problem with Binance. However, given what Udi uh, Wertheimer has uncovered on this one, that's not good. That's, it's, it's, it doesn't look good. It, you know, to tell you the truth, this is the way it looks. It looks like you're hiding something. If you've got some like where it's like, oh, we're all decentralized and we're doing X, Y, and Z and it's decentralized and you only offer binaries, there's a lot, there's a lot more than the majority of the people that automatically think there's something bad here. That's just the way it is. So I'm hoping Binance will get their uh, collective shit together 
and uh, roll out the damn code. Okay. Just roll out the code so people can read it because people will, and maybe they'll help you. Maybe they'll, you know, identify a bug. I don't know, but hiding it in a, in a binary uh, just looks untrustworthy people. All right, on up, Matt Odell has uh, tweeted out, Samsung, the world's largest smartphone manufacturer, confirmed they are including a Bitcoin wallet in their new phones. This is extremely bullish. Yes, the wallet will probably be shitty and advertised as more secure than it actually is. Doesn't matter. Still a big step forward. What's Matt? What is Matt talking about? Okay, so Bitcoin Magazine has a, um, a write-up on this. It's done by Landon, uh, written by Landon Manning, uh, as of yesterday afternoon. And <clears throat> it says, "New Samsung Galaxy S10 includes baked-in storage for private keys." Samsung announced on February the 21st that their newest phone, the Galaxy S10, will include secure storage for its users' cryptocurrency private keys. <coughs> the company made a press release detailing the phone's many features, notably including Samsung's proprietary defense platform, Samsung Knox, <laughs> which will feature secure private key storage that, is claim- that it claims is specifically for blockchain-enabled mobile services. Baked-in support for cryptocurrencies and smartphone platforms is not completely unique to the space, although this initiative by Samsung represents a major step for the technology's integration into mainstream products. As it stands, there are currently two smartphones that support crypto assets, HTC's Exodus One and Siren Labs' Finny. These two phones have seen much more limited adoption than any product Samsung could release for several reasons. The Exodus One, for example, is made by a Taiwanese computer hardware company and is currently only available for purchase through crypto transactions. Finney is at least available for purchase using fiat currency, but the company behind it has less of a proven track record for creating quality hardware products. Samsung, on the other hand, is the largest corporation in South Korea and currently holds the 12th rank on the Fortune 500 list. A product produced by this company will have a significantly lower barrier to entry for the common consumer. As the Galaxy S9 is yet to hit consumer shelves, the company has not gone into great detail of the technical specifications of this key storage technology. Community website Sam Mobile published rumors that this technology was in the making for the Galaxy S10 based on several patents that the company had recently filed. Shortly afterward, Samsung immediately refused to comment on these allegations to the press, claiming that, quote, unfortunately, we are unable to provide any information as the below is rumor and speculation, end quote. Given this air of secrecy the Samsung that Samsung is treating this new product with, it is unlikely that more information on the specifics of these features will be revealed before launch. Still, this device could do a great deal towards adding convenience and accessibility of crypto technology for the average user. So there you go. Uh, Samsung, one of the largest manufacturers of mobile phones, looks like they're going to enter into the fray. And I, I agree, it's bullish. Uh, I'm absolutely certain that when it finally does come out, uh, it'll take maybe a couple of hours to a couple of days, but somebody will pull it apart and figure out all manner of effed up stuff in there and, and scare the bejesus out of everybody. So 
when this does get released, get ready for the FUD. All right. So uh, we have a Wired article here. Um, and it's, yeah, we can, we, it, I was not going to read it, but it's, it's readable. Um, it's an opinion poll out of Wired. Uh, this is done by Peter Van Valkenburg. Bitcoin may be what gets us real net neutrality. And net neutrality is a really important thing for those of you who don't know. The recent net neutrality victory at the FCC is not a silver bullet. We can expect costly court challenges, complicated enforcement, and the risks that come with entrusting a large government bureaucracy to manage the technological problem. More competition would be a better solution, and that's where Bitcoin comes in. As Mark Andreessen recently told the Washington Post, quote, the ultimate answer would be if you had three or four or five broadband providers to every house. In such a world, Andreessen explained, net neutrality is a much less central issue. Because if you've got competition, if one of your providers started to screw with you, you'd just switch to another one of your providers. But how do you get more last mile competitors? Quote, I think you actually have the potential for that, depending on how things play out from here, Andreessen said, you can imagine a world in which there are five competitors to every home for broadband, telcos, cable, Google, fiber, mobile carriers, unlicensed spectrum. That last one, using unlicensed spectrum, has been a tough nut to crack. This is actually rather strange given that we are awash in internet connectivity over unlicensed spectrum bands. I'm talking about the Wi-Fi routers in every home, apartment, coffee shop, office across the country that surrounds us at all times. The problem, of course, is that all of these networks on ramped are locked. You, your neighbors, and everyone, everyone else password protects otherwise open wireless connections on the internet. Why? The tragedy of the commons and privacy. A homeowner who pays for broadband doesn't want her freeloading torrent-hungry neighbors spoiling a comfy evening with Netflix and boxed wine, especially if she's got no way to make them share the cost. And a neighbor piggybacking on the homeowner's Wi-Fi, freeloading or not, doesn't want others to see what she's reading, watching, or Skyping. Last mile bandwidth sits largely unused because people perceive only two possibilities, opening the connection to everyone but losing privacy and getting stuck with the check, or locking down the last mile so they, that only they can use it. Micropayments and encryption could provide a way out from this trade-off. Efficient micropayments, however, have not been possible before the invention of Bitcoin. <clears throat> there are three steps to enable this last mile infrastructure over unlicensed spectrum. First, encrypt the traffic, the network traffic so that sharing your connection doesn't mean seeing your neighbor's activities. Second, <clears throat> charge those who would send traffic through your devices for the privilege using micropayments. Third, program these open routers to seek the fastest connection to the larger internet, not only through their own wired hookup, but through their nearby peers. Knitting all of these consumer devices together gives us a mesh network. Imp oh, hold on. Sorry. Such a shared infrastructure protects privacy through encryption. Individuals are paid to maintain and even improve their links in the mesh with the micropayments. And software can intelligently direct traffic through intermediate nodes that offer the best connection to an outside resource for the price. 
Mesh participants with particularly strong connections to desirable internet destinations will earn more in micropayments as their peers seek connection through their routers. Man, this looks hauntingly familiar like routing through the Lightning Network. These favored participants <clears throat> can use some of that revenue to pay for larger data plans or even faster access. Say, for example, you're the one apartment in the neighborhood with a super fast connection to Netflix servers. Maybe you have a premium subscription from the telecom that hasn't throttled Netflix, or even better, maybe you've negotiated a wholesale fiber hookup to a tier one network for your business. As the fastest connection to, to a desired server, you'll earn more in micropayments from your neighbors. The money you earn is your revenue for being a valuable part of the mesh. You are free to pocket some Bitcoin and <clears throat> use others to pay for the connection to the wider internet or to invest in an even faster connection and better routing hardware. Eventually, if you're dealing with a wholesale provider or a particularly progressive telecom, payment for your uplink could also be metered and denominated in Bitcoin. And traffic traveling through you from the mesh network could directly pay your provider through an intelligent Bitcoin accepting modem. <laughs> uh, this scheme writ <clears throat> this scheme writ large is far better than a few neighbors sharing Wi-Fi. It could become a mesh network for hundreds or even thousands in a given area. The mesh network taken as a whole reduces granularity in hookups. It's a neighborhood that seeks connections, not a bunch of individual customers. This means that an outside infrastructure provider need only bring a pipe to the town square rather than everyone's home without the costly need to duplicate another provider's efforts stringing connections to individual homes. We can expect more competitors offering connections to any given mesh. That means more competition and fewer opportunities for discrimination. Telecoms may balk at this plan. It's potentially disruptive. Moving their revenue model from high-margin consumer entertainment services to low-margin utility provisioning for a neighborhood. Should those companies refuse to connect to mesh networks, however, wholesale internet providers, pre previously available only to large enterprise clients, may enthusiastically fill the void, even for data. It can pay to buy in bulk, and mesh networks combined with micropayments can bring those benefits of scale to each individual peer. Bitcoin and the low transaction costs that automated micropayments can provide are the keys to building these better markets, which will ultimately unlock net neutrality itself. And that's the end of it. Yeah, that's that would be, you know, that would be cool. Um, there's a there's a whole lot of stuff uh, that, you know, you can bounce back and forth uh, idea wise on that, like um, if I, you know, if I were to decide to be the guy with the biggest pipe in my neighborhood, all of a sudden, in a way, I'm acting as a salesperson for uh, who's on ramping me, because if they're if if my pipe is the one being used to send you know send data through the AT and T network, um, then all of a sudden it's within it's it's in my interest, in a way, to promote AT and T. But I'd be doing it by promoting my own pipe. AT and T would get the benefit because if I'm taking micropayments from all these people. I'm going to be giving a larger and larger portion of that, or not a portion. Um, as the pie gets bigger, the same slice of the pie gets bigger. So AT&T's same slice of the pie from me, the more people I on-ramp, the bigger that slice gets. So in effect, I'm free labor for AT&T. That's something to think about, man. Anyway, so let's get back up into the stack. What is next? What is next? Um... 
Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. The <clears throat> Ohio using Bitcoin to pay taxes. Uh, we got an article out from Bitcoin Magazine from Jimmy Aki. Headline, so far, only two businesses in Ohio have used Bitcoin to pay taxes. According to a recent statement made by Ohio State Tre Treasurer, so far, only two businesses have filed their taxes in crypto using the state's crypto tax payment scheme. Speaking at a forum organized by, organized by the Ohio State Associated Press on February 19th, Robert Sprague fielded questions about the department's experiences with the newly launched Bitcoin payment option for taxes, which was set up by his predecessor, Josh Mandel, in December 2018. Sprague who assumed his position a little over a month ago states that the county or yeah, the, the country has now I think it's the county has received only two tax payments so far on the state's official crypto payment platform, OhioCrypto.com. In addition, he said, we're reviewing how the program might be either curtailed or might be expanded and what our counterparty risk is with that vendor. However, a spokesperson declined to offer specific details concerning the exact value the state has received in Bitcoin pay taxes, claiming that such tax-related information is covered by financial confidentiality as it should. That's what I'm saying. Still, the slow rate of usage won't deter the state, whose lawmakers are hoping to become a major hub for the blockchain industry. As stated earlier, the new tax payment system was established by D Josh Mandel, who viewed cryptocurrencies as a legitimate form of money. At the time, Mendel said, quote, Our biggest motive here was to give taxpayers more options in paying their taxes. Going further, to tell Bloomberg that the state was, quote, Proud to do our part, small part and take this small step to make Ohio the first state in America to enable taxpayers to be able to pay via cryptocurrency. According to reports, the filing process for making these payments included three steps. The first step is registration. Businesses have to register with the Office of the Ohio Treasurer to set up their accounts on the state's tax payment platform. From there, they would enter their tax details, including tax period, period and payment amount, on the platform, after which time they can pay their taxes with Bitcoin from a compatible wallet. Those include the BRD, Mycelium, and the Bitcoin Core client, as well as other compatible with the Bitcoin payment protocol. Once made, the payments are processed by BitPay, Ugh. the Atlanta-based Bitcoin payment processing firm from BitPay. The digital assets are converted into dollars and sent back to the state's treasurer office as the final step of the process. That's the end of Jimmy's uh, article here. User experience, people. We talked about this yesterday. User freaking experience. There's, there's two things here. One, why is everybody so damned impatient for all this shit to work out of the box? Should everything be pre-built? What about all the stuff that we don't even know, haven't even thought of? That stuff hasn't been built either. We ain't bitching about that. How come, why is it that it's only when we know about a thing that all of a sudden we get pissed off about that thing? What is it about the knowledge of some X? There is a through freaking Z minus X out there that we don't know anything about and we're not angry about it. We're not impatient about it. Why is it that when something comes into existence, it's everybody's natural, the natural order is to take a giant dump on it because it isn't flushing my toilet for me yet. 
This is bullshit, people. I tell I have to tell my freaking kids about patience. And guess what? They got it through their head a hell of a lot quicker than most of the adults that are bitching about whatever it is they're bitching about, about Bitcoin not being this and that and lightning not being this and that. And it's not fast enough. And the user experience is blah, blah, blah. Jesus, my kids are six and nine and they get it. People calm down. That said, in this particular case, I I do believe two things. One, user experience is lacking in this particular, in at least in this description. There's too many hoops to jump through. Too many damn hoops. And, and this this would be this would sort of be a situation where the reverse is true of the edge effect. We have two nascent, or actually the tax experiences, the user experience has been dreadful. Since the, since 1913, let's let's get real, okay? We didn't have all this crap before 1913, okay? And the the Federal Reserve Act and all that shit. We didn't have it. We didn't have to deal with it. Yet we're still here. We made it all the way from the from from beating the the largest army on the face of the planet in the 1700s all the way to 1913 without a freaking tax on us. And somehow or another, we survived. And the minute that we enacted frickin' 1913, the Federal Reserve Act, the very first thing that happened, World War I. Come on, people, get it through your heads. All right, so the, the tax situation, user experience has always been shit. And we have a nascent technology whose user experience is still shit. It's only 10 years old. We got... Something that's over 100 years old, rubbing up against something that's 10 years old, both the user experiences are not good. What do you think that edge is going to look like? That edge is not going to be pretty. And we, <laughs> this is exactly where it's not pretty. And this is exactly probably why there's only two. But that said, hell, I'm surprised there was two. I'm, a, I'm actually, I'm not excited. I don't like it when people have to pay taxes. But I'm actually like, Wow. In the first year, somebody actually used the used the thing. Holy crap. Next year, it'll be four. After that, it'll be eight. Double pennies. Double, like, do, do the exercise. Take one penny, double it. How many days before you're a millionaire? I think it's 28. Not sure. But the same thing happens here. So... Guys who are y'all who are you know, so impatient for for adoption and bitching about how the user experience just sucks, all this has to be worked on. That's why people have jobs. If everything was already fixed, nobody would work at all, ever, under any circumstances. There'd be no reason. Everything would be fixed. So think about it that way. Maybe we can calm down a little bit. My God Almighty. Uh. Let's see. Oh, um, block crypto. Uh, wait, hold on, hold on for a sec. Make sure that I've got the right one. Yeah. Uh, Brazilian bank PTG Pactual launches a security token. Hopes crypto will attract investors to distressed real estate assets as if it just didn't get worse and worse and worse. Like I said, this is from theblockcrypto.com. 
And this is the blurb that they're right, they're uh, covering uh, for Bloomberg. Less than a week after the news of J.P. Morgan Chase embracing cryptocurrency, another bank has announced the launch of their own token. Brazil's BTG Pactual is gearing up to launch a security token with an initial offering expected to raise $15 million U.S. The token, called RightBiz, yeah, okay, hold on. I'm going to stop reading for a second so that I can collect my blood pressure. Shit you not. The token called RightBZ. R-E-I-T-B-Z. Technically, I suppose that it should be called or pronounced REIT-BZ because of all, all of you that know or don't know what, you know, remember the REITs, the Real Estate Investment Trust? This was one of the mechanisms that got freaking trashed and was also in part kind of did, didn't help the situation between, you know, that led to 2008. The REITs were, that was the thing, man. You invested in REITs. Well, where the hell do you think those chopped up derivatives were? What do you think they were funding? They were funding REITs. They were funding investment vehicles and, and instruments like REITs. And here we have a bank that is releasing an ICO, that is making an ICO. Let's be clear. It's an ICO. So that will it will attract shitheads to crappy investments. I mean, that's what that that's what the headline should read. It should read Brazilian bank BTG Pactual launches an ICO hopes stupid hopes hopes stupid ideas will attract stupid people with money to buy their bags. That's what that's what this should say. Stay as far away from this shit as possible. The token called REITBZ should be back will be backed by Brazil's distressed real estate. Following the purchase, a bank-owned asset manager, Enforce, will provide investors with regular dividends from the assets. Holy shit. BTG expects these returns to average between 15% and 20% per year on a yearly basis and has decided to deploy their own capital to provide liquidity for the token. God, it's starting to hurt, y'all. Remember, I do this for you. Quote, we came up with this structure because we think investors in the digital world have a higher risk-taking appetite, says Gustavo Rojo, the bank's chief technology officer. BTG plans to reinvest any proceeds made from the token back into the real estate business. And oh my God, someone just kill me now. Seriously, this is bad. Stay as far away as humanly freaking possible from this. This just no 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 no. Just it's it's bad. It's 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 bad 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 bad. Almost it's it's worse than this that I'm about to read. But this is bad too. This is also from the blockcrypto.com. Telefonica will allow users to sell their private data via blockchain marketplace. That's right, people. Multinational telecom giant Telefonica is trialing a decentralized data marketplace that allows subscribers to own and sell their personal information, according to a statement. Telefonica will play a key role in verifying consumers' data, but its subsidiary, Movie Star. Uh, 
in Uruguay will run the trial. They will then rely on the Wibson data marketplace, connecting users to data buying or to data buyers like technology platforms, advertisers, marketers, academia, social good researchers. Its blockchain-based mobile app launched in October across three countries, including the UK, and relies on the token WIB to allow users to receive quote-unquote payment for their data transaction via a smart contract. Wibson CEO Travisano, Travisano said the firm's marketplace quote, gives consumers an easy way to profit from the personal data they create every day, as well as follow, allowing them to decide when and to whom they sell their data. The announcement hints at the growing interest around enterprise blockchain and its particular use case for disrupting data ownership models. You know, I think I'm just going to leave that there. And let's go ahead and get on into the vital statistics for the day. As always, bitinfocharts.com is where I go to get this information. And we have Bitcoin at an average of 3,960.85 with a high at Bitfinex of 4,050.1 USD and a low of, looks like it's going to be GDAX at 3,938. 300,000 transactions were made over the last 24 hours. That's normal. Uh, 1.3 million BTC has been sent the last 24 hours. 54,000 BTC are, is sent on average per hour. Uh, the average transaction value is 4.36 BTC, while the median transaction value is 0.041 BTC or about 160 bucks USD. Block time is stable at 10 minutes, 40 seconds. The amount of fees that have been taken uh, per block on average is 0.278 BTC and the total amount taken in fees over the last 24 hours is 37.37 BTC. The hash rate has fallen below 40 exahashes per second. Uh, We've lost about four and a half percent and we are down to 38.9 exahashes per second. Uh, The last GitHub commit was yesterday, so they haven't committed anything today. Across my board, Ethereum is at 148, Litecoin is at 49, Bcash is at 142, BSV is at 65, Ethereum Classic is at 4.5, Dogecoin is at 0.002. At 25,666 transactions over the last 24 hours, it's still smoking the living shit out of both BAB and BSV. Again, as usual, nobody uses those chains and that is your vital statistics for the day. All right, Marty's Bent for Thursday, February the 21st, 2019, issue number 425, Stop and Decrypt gets it. And he's got a, uh, a tweet chain or a small tweet storm from Stop and Decrypt. You can find Stop and Decrypt at Stop and Decrypt on Twitter. How to build a Bitcoin Lightning wallet that people want to use. Bullet points. Available in iOS. Looks nice. Works smooth. 
It's a fully-fledged Bitcoin wallet. Users can connect to their own Bitcoin Lightning nodes. Your service actively maintains its own node. Your app provably doesn't collect data, has a warrant warrant canary on launch. Simple, advanced expert user toggles with warnings must manually enable, enable each time. Allows users to create a transaction offline and announces it elsewhere. App users can open channels with any node, not just yours. Non-app users can also open channels with your node. If I use your app to open a channel with your node, your node has no way to know I used your app. It's built like this on launch day because your privacy is first. Your Lightning node has a moderately set fee rate. The app default setting to open a channel are set to connect to your node but can easily be changed. You make money by being usable, open, honest, consistent. The app downloads the entire routing table and provides simple, advanced, expert routing functionality. This functionality includes 2B built features like AMP, an invoice generation that doesn't reveal where the payment is going to the third party that your invoice is sent. They won't know your app's user is using your app. Provide an external pay for inbound capacity service. It allows users to generate an invoice, pay from their Lightning channel, and provide an address to receive BTC into their Bitcoin wallet of choice. This requires some trust, so you build that by doing all of the above. Both BTC slash LN wallets can be easily backed up separately. Users can import any of the standardized wallet key seeds and raw keys. When Watchtower functionality is ready, users can select any one they want and connect directly to them. You have no idea which ones they choose. Expert mode would essentially include everything Samurai Wallet has. <laughs> so Marty says, our boy stopping Decrypt is at it again, clearly explaining billion dollar business ideas for free on Twitter.com. How generous of him. We are truly lucky. Seriously, seriously though, keeping in line with the recent theme of UX design and Bitcoin, <coughs> this is what I envision the winner of the consumer Bitcoin wallet war to look like. A company that comes to market with every box on the above list checked off is going to see a lot of traction in my humble opinion. Low-hanging fruit freaks. It's out there to be scooped up by people with enough balls to take the risk of dedicating time and some money to make it happen. Luckily, we have trailblazers like Samurai Wallet pushing the edges of the mobile wallet space towards a future of better privacy and financial freedom that Bitcoin can enable, though there is much room for increased competition and improvement. Most companies entering the fray, lighting a fire under incumbents' asses so that they compete on privacy plus security, will ensure that we have the ironclad digital tools needed to interact with Bitcoin without a third party or with the least amount of risk as possibly needed when interacting with a third party. For some reason, I'm extremely optimistic. The competition is on the way. I don't think we're that far off from these ironclad tools as some think we may be. Once someone checks off the above list and provides a seamless UX on top of it, everyone will be forced to compete using these features as new baseline features when creating or upgrading a wallet. Who's got the balls to send it? Final thought. Haven't had a glass of milk in ages. Used to chug it by the half gallon in high school. Don't miss it that much. You know what, Marty? GFY, buddy. I love milk and I'm allergic to it. It causes all kinds of problems with like, you know, inflammation and stuff like that that just isn't good. 
if you can drink milk and it's not jacking with your ass, go out, buy a gallon of milk, chug the living shit out of it, man. Chug, chug two, do one for me because I, God, I miss it. Like freaking like ice cold, a huge, big, like frozen glass and you pull it out of the freezer and it's like a big, thick walled glass too. So, you know, it's going to keep cold for a long time and pull the freaking cold damn milk that you can into that thing until like a little bit of like every, you know, every once in a while, a little bit piece of ice comes up to the top. Either that or a bag of Oreos or famous Amos cookies or something like that. Oh God. Yeah. So yeah, Marty, if you can drink milk and it's not jacking with your stomach or intestines or your esophagus or any of your internal linings or whatever, dude, be a, do a breath solid, go get some milk. All right, so that was Marty's bent, and we will see what Marty comes up with next time. Okay, a little bit of torchlight going on. Uh, torch is still running around. And Hodel Knot had, a couple of hours ago gave a, a little bit of some, you know, some stats on the LN trust chain. Uh, so he says some hashtag LN trust chain torch hodl time stats. First 50 hops were done in two days, more than one pass per hour. Last eight hops have taken four days, more than 12 hours per pass. This is strange since the number and quality of invoices are much higher now. And he goes on to say that passing the torch quickly is a virtue Holding it for too long kills the momentum. And I I mean, these are just the things that we're just going to have to deal with on this kind of crap. Um, although the next invoice, um, it looks like it's going to be for 3.64 million Satoshis. And it's going to be by, uh, looks like it's going to be passed out uh, from Wiz because it looks like Charlie Lee, or Charlie Shrim, who was one of the last torch holders, gave it to at Wiz, W-I-Z, he says, it is an honor to be called an OG by Charlie, but he gives me more credit than I deserve for Mt. Gox. The hero who solved the case of the stolen Bitcoin from Mt. Gox and who wrote the WizSec reports for the community is Kim Nilsson at N-I-K-U-H-O-D-A-I. I'm no longer involved with at Wiz security. Um, if you guys don't remember that uh, for years after the Mt. Gax, uh, Gox hack happened, nobody knew where the coins were. Um, WizSec uh, was an operation. I don't know how many people are involved. Um, nobody knows. Um, but they they did a chain analysis and discovered who took the coins, how they were moved around, and they released a giant report. I want to say it was I want to say it was early part of last year, 2018. It may have even been. It may have been the last part of 2017. I cannot remember when, but uh, I don't know if it was directly attributed to or part of or had nothing to do with, but the the uh, person who stole the coins from Mt. Gox, if I, believe, if I remember correctly, was arrested in Greece while he was on holiday. And uh, I think the WizSec, uh, WizSec data was one of the things that, that 
got him arrested and and if he's been pr- prosecuted was you know probably had a hand in in prosecuting him so uh last thing for lightning uh for torchlight is can we get a woohoo bitcoin lightning network sees 830% increase in network capacity over 6 months that's right okay this is not the light this is not the 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 torch right this is just the lightning network all the the whole lightning network in six months, it has seen an 8.3 X growth in six months that what the hell grows eight X in six months other than a fungus. I don't know what. So anyway, that's going to be your torchlight for the day. The Daily Train Wrecked is brought to you by Signature Bank, who is quoted as saying, We can maintain the private keys. We are refreshing the blockchain ourselves and powering the blockchain ourselves. So there's no need for any independent miners. There certainly aren't any, and the blockchain refreshes every 5 to 25 seconds. Okay, so where's what's going on here? What other than the okay, the train wreck is is the quote itself. I mean, come on. If you if you've been in this thing for any longer than six months, you automatically recognize that everything in that quote is an absolute pile of garbage. Okay, so where's this coming from? This is a piece by Benjamin uh Pyrrhus. From Forbes.com, Signature Bank beats JPM Morgan to Ethereum-based token services. <clears throat> JP Morgan Chase recently released, released a digital asset called JPM Coin, pegged to the U.S. dollar, set for testing later in 2019. Misconceptions, however, included JPM Coin was the first of its kind when Signature Bank actually beat them to the punch. Back in December 2018, Forbes initially covered Signature Bank's move toward a U.S. dollar-based token. The bank created Signet, a blockchain-based payment ecosystem using Signets as digital dollars. Signature Bank built its Signet platform utilizing a private permissioned form of Ethereum's blockchain, Signature Bank told me via email correspondence. Signature Bank co-founder and chairman Scott Shea further explained the platform's details 
in my interview with him, quote, we're using an Ethereum blockchain with essentially our own walled garden in that we will be maintaining the blockchain. <laughs> <coughs> Woo. I just want to spin the propeller on top of my beanie at this point. <clears throat> Describing the platform's private permissioned Ethereum blockchain usage, quote, we can maintain the private keys. We are refreshing the blockchain ourselves and powering the blockchain ourselves. So there's no need for any, any, any independent miners. There certainly aren't any. And the blockchain refreshes every five to 25 seconds. Do you know what this is people? This is Cartman playing by himself in the backyard with a bunch of inanimate dolls. That's all I'm going to say about that. That's your daily train wrecked signature bank. Go blow chunks, pal. Terrible Joke Corner, brought to you as usual by Bad Joke Cat. Police were called to a daycare center today. A two-year-old boy was resisting arrest. Okay, so here, here's, where, here's where this terrible joke centers on. The difference between arrest, the word being like for being arrested by the cops, and a space rest. So the bad joke here depends on phonetics. The inability for us to say he's under arrest and being able to say arrest and have arrest and arrest verbally sound different. From an aural situation, there's no way that that somebody can tell the difference between arrest and arrest except given context. So the context here is what's so funny. We use the context of a daycare and then bring in the concept of somebody going to jail. And when when those two ideas collide, guess what happens? you get edge effect. Again, edge effect. It all boils down to edge effect. That's your terrible joke corner for the day. Okay, guys, I'm out. Have a wonderful, wonderful, kick-ass, totally jacked-out, freaking weekend do something fun if you got somebody you love go do somebody go do something fun with somebody you love um be nice to each other uh take it easy all that kind of stuff man uh we could all we could all use a break <laughs> with the amount of stupid that has occurred this week alone we could all use a break and i will see you guys on the other side this has been bitcoin and And I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.